saying, see your son. As we see him, Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen our faith, sustain us and nourish us in Christ. For those who maybe don't trust him, we pray today would be the day that eyes would be opened to see Christ for who he is. We love you. We pray for your help. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, as we talk about very often here at CBC, the Bible has one main point. And the main point of the scripture is none other than Jesus himself. It is the point of the scripture, Jesus and the plan of redemption that God will accomplish and is accomplishing through him. So every part of the Bible should be understood in light of Christ and the salvation he has accomplished for us, which is the point. So when we go to the scriptures and we do other things with them, bad stuff occurs. It bears bad fruit. If we go to the Bible as a book full of moral truths and platitudes for living, if we go to the Bible like it's a kind of step-by-step handbook for life and godliness, if we go to the Bible looking for what we can do or what we need to do in order to find favor with God, we end up with a very pharisaical religion where we codify and principalize everything. Or, equally as bad, maybe worse, we end up with a kind of Christianity that we actually don't need Jesus for at all. People are taught principles for better marriage. People are given wisdom as to how to structure their lives and make better decisions. People are informed on the culture wars and debates about creation and evolution and all these things. People make all kinds of pledges and commitments and get purity rings, all while missing the point. This kind of thing can occur with any and every passage of Scripture, but some maybe more than others. It happens very frequently in the Old Testament because a lot of times we don't know what to do with it. Today, we're going to be considering the account of Noah and the flood. I mean, so this is a big one. This is one of those like flannel board and Sunday school kind of stories that we're all familiar with. And it is often, sadly, reduced to somewhat unimportant things. It is reduced to a debate and a conversation about tertiary and peripheral concerns. It's reduced to a conversation about what could or could not have fit on the ark or it's an often moralized account. It's often principalized. Now, don't misunderstand me. There will be takeaways. There will be handles, things that you can walk out of here with from this text today, but they will not center on us. They will center on God. They will center on his law and our sin. And they will center on his gospel and our salvation. So I have three points for our consideration today, and we will be reflecting and somewhat applying the text as we go. And one or two of these points, as you might surmise, will be relatively robust, so just track with me, and we trust the Lord is with us. So point number one, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 9 to 22, and a heading for this section would be preparation for the flood. 
preparation for the flood. If I was going to give it a more substantial heading, maybe it would be something like the grace and promises of God and the faith of Noah. Put your eyes on verse 9. We see the phrase there at the beginning of the verse, these are the generations of Noah. Remember that this formula, when you see it in the book of Genesis, the generations of, it serves as a kind of heading to introduce a new section of significant material. We've seen it twice already in chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when the Lord made them. And then we saw it also in chapter 5 and verse 1. These are the generations of Adam. Now we're getting these are the generations of Noah. On Noah, let's talk about Noah for just a minute. In verse 8, the verse right before where our passage begins today, we read that Noah found favor in God's eyes. In other words, he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's significant. Then in verse 9, we read of this man that he was righteous and blameless in God's sight and that he walked with God. In chapter 7 and verse 1, if you skip down there, we also see God reiterate the fact that Noah is righteous before him. So it's very clear that Noah was a man of integrity. That's clear even in reading this passage that we're looking at Today, it's clear in this section of Genesis chapter 6. But more is said of Noah than he's just a man of integrity. It's not what the text says. He is called righteous. He's called blameless. So how is it that he could be called these things? If you were here last week and we were thinking about Cain and Abel and their sacrifices and all that good stuff, you might anticipate what's coming right now. How is it? that Noah could be called righteous and blameless? Is it because he was not like other fallen people? The answer to that is no. All we need to do is read a few chapters ahead into chapter 9, where we're going to see that Noah is just like us. After the flood, for example, he plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, he passes out, and then there is language, biblical language, for like shady sexual stuff going on. In saying this, I am not aiming to draw attention and make a big deal out of Noah's sin, but rather to highlight that Noah's blamelessness is not his own blamelessness. That his righteousness is not his own inherent righteousness. So how then is Noah a righteous and blameless man? How then did Noah, as the text says, walk with God? Well, the answer is he did so, and he was so by faith. Hebrews 11, 7. Thank God for Hebrews 11. Because when we're studying Genesis time and time and time again, we're going to see the people from early in biblical history mentioned by the writer of the Hebrews. And we're going to understand how it is that the Lord accomplished his purposes through them and in them. And it is always not according to what they're doing or their works or their goodness, it is always by faith. Hebrews eleven seven By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. David wrote many psalms, right? And 
one of the Psalms he wrote is Psalm 32. And the first two verses of that Psalm describe anyone who has found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And those first two verses of Psalm 32 describe Noah. How is Noah righteous and blameless? As David writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Not that the man doesn't have it, but that God doesn't count it against him. Noah was counted righteous by faith in God's promises. And in particular, faith in God's promises realized and accomplished through the promised one who would come. Remember, Noah's own father, when Noah was named, we looked at this last week, his own father was very clearly looking for the promised offspring of Adam and Eve who would save everybody. And he named Noah what he did because he was hopeful that this was the child. Noah is trusting in the promises of God that would be realized and accomplished through the promised one and was counted righteous on the base of it. And he walked with God by faith. Just like you and I walk with God by faith. So the takeaways from Noah's life, here's a few, just bullet points. This is not a sermon on being like Noah, but if we want to look at Noah and say, what can we glean? Here's a few things. Faith. Number one, Noah believed God, and then he acted accordingly. We're going to see that repeated a couple of different times. He takes God at his word, and he does what the Lord tells him to do. It's quite simple. We don't need 17 principles on Noah's life. We can take those. Believe the Lord. Do as he says. He has reverence toward God. And in that sense, he walks humbly before him. He walked with God by faith. And for those of us sitting here this morning trusting in Christ, we do as well. Walk with God by faith. This has always been how it works. One last thing regarding Noah, a significant thing. In God's plan of redemption, and as we see it beginning to unfold, even here in the early chapters of Genesis. Remember that promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that there would come an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver God's people and undo the curse. Noah and his household, but Noah in particular, is the one through whom God is going to preserve that plan. God is keeping redemption going. The line of the promised one is being sustained through Noah. In all of this, God is accomplishing his purposes of redemption that are not just for Noah and his family. Yes, Noah and his family are going to be delivered from God's judgment in the flood. But we should see as we look through Noah, down through the ages, the plan of God to save his people. So when huge, like, seismic events like the flood occur in the Scripture, or when epic moments, think like David and Goliath, occur in the Scripture, we should be thinking this question as we read it. Like, oh my gosh, is the light about to go out on redemption? Is the light about to go out on salvation? 
God's talking about wiping out the planet. And every time that we come to a seismic event like this, or we come to an epic moment like David and Goliath, and it looks like it's over, man. Redemption's over. We read that it's not. And it's not because of God. Even the great flood that is going to wipe out life on earth will not wash away God's plan to save a people through his promised Christ. Verses 11 and 12. Just going to put your eyes there for a minute. Just going to kind of sum some of this text up for us. We see the wickedness of man on the earth. The world is corrupt. It's filled with violence, the text says. And remember how God had originally told mankind through Adam, fill the earth and subdue it as people who bear God's image and were to rule in his place. Fill it and subdue it with goodness. But instead of that happening, all humanity has managed to do is fill the earth with violence. Everything is corrupt because mankind has corrupted it. Then in verse 13, God speaks to Noah about the coming judgment that he is going to inflict on humanity and on the earth because of man. And then in verses 14 to 16, we have God telling Noah to build an ark. Now the word, just kind of reading the scripture this way, the word that's rendered ark is found in one other place in the Old Testament. This is pretty cool. One other place in the Old Testament, it occurs in Exodus chapter 2 when Moses is a baby. And Moses is put into a basket, literally an ark on the Nile River. It's not coincidental, right? He also is one who found favor, who found grace in the eyes of God, and he, like Noah, would be brought safely through water. We'll be talking about that idea, brought safely through water. You can kind of bookmark that in your mind. We'll come back to it. God gives Noah particular instructions about how to build the ark. For the engineering types in the room, the dimensions of this vessel are one that could actually float as compared to some other ancient myths concerning a great flood that had boats that were shaped like cubes. Displacement and all those kinds of things, according to these dimensions, the boat would float. You do with that what you will. The roof being fixed above the sides of the ark is also interesting. It allows space for light and air to get in. And then in the verse 17, excuse me, as you put your eyes there, The Lord reveals to Noah, here's why you're building this ark, this boat. Because he's going to bring a flood on the earth to destroy every living thing that is on the earth. So now, as we think about the flood, we see something of God's law and God's righteousness and justice and holiness. We see something of the punishment that man deserves for breaking the law. Man is wicked. Look at verse 5 of Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We've seen in verses 11 to 13 today how man has corrupted the earth and has filled it with violence and so God is going to act in judgment. He's going to wipe out all living creatures on the earth because of man's sin and the earth itself will be affected. The earth will literally bear the scars of the flood forever. It's a pretty remarkable part. All of this to say the breaking of God's law is a big deal. It is cosmic in scope. 
Then in verses 18 to 21, God makes a promise to Noah. This judgment is coming, but God says, I'm going to save you and your family. This is in direct contrast to what God has just communicated to Noah about what's going to happen to corrupt humanity. And it is only by God's grace and Noah's faith that Noah will be rescued. In verse 22, we read that Noah did everything that God commanded. And as we've already considered, Noah walked with the Lord in faith, and so he took the Lord at his word and acted accordingly. Very briefly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to make a comment. Happy to talk about this at the door after. I don't think any human being can adequately answer this, these questions that people often have about the ark and will say, you know, how, did, how many animals are on there and the food and like, how did this work? Some legitimate questions to ask. The scripture is unclear about those things. And I think what we would need to remember is that the language about animals is ambiguous on purpose. We're talking about genus, family, species, all kinds of things. We're not sure how many animals were on the ark, a representative set, right? And then food, how could they get all the food on the ark? Not sure. But we are dealing with a God who fed his people with bread from heaven. We're dealing with a God who caused quail to just fall out of the sky, waist deep, as far as anybody could see. We're dealing with a God who, when he was incarnate on earth, fed thousands of people with a couple of pieces of bread and some fish. We're dealing with supernatural things, in other words, right? It's the best answer I have. We want to try to clear up misunderstanding. But at the end of the day, the scripture doesn't speak to it. And when we speculate, we tend to get it wrong. Before we leave point number one in terms of preparation excuse me, for the flood, I want to draw something out of the text as well. God has told Noah what's going to happen. And Noah has acted accordingly. But notice that there's a long span of time that transpires before the flood actually comes. Remember in chapter 6 and verse 3, God had determined that he would bear with man 120 years, meaning until the flood comes. We talked about that last week. That's three 40-year generations that he would bear with man before judging them with the flood. The things described in Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 to 22, before the flood comes, occur during that span of time. It's a long time. And in that, friends, we need to see things about God that mattered then and matter now. He is demonstrating his patience. He is demonstrating his kindness. He does not just wipe out humanity with no warning because he has other purposes. The kindness and patience of God is meant to lead human beings to repentance. This is Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What was going on in that span of time? Well, Noah's building a big boat. That's true. A lot of work. But we're also told in 2 Peter chapter 2 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was given a message to preach, a message of righteousness in particular. And I don't think it's far-fetched at all to surmise that that message of righteousness is the same message that we preach today. Believe God. Trust His promises. And by faith, there is righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. So for us today, the kindness and patience of God is meant to lead people to repentance. 
See, we look around. I mean, this is legit, right? We look around at the world, and life is hard in a fallen world, is it not? There's suffering everywhere. And as Christians, sometimes we look at that, and we look at the suffering in our own lives, or we look at a dying loved one or something like that, and we say, Lord, why don't you just come back and make this right? Why don't you come back and take these things away? In one sense, though, every day that Jesus does not return is a message about God's patience and kindness because he desires that more people would be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of Christ coming back, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, we read about God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is important as we think about what I'm saying right now. Some thoughts may be going off on your, in your head about God's sovereignty and his grace and how we can't come to faith apart from God doing it. That's all true. And God has revealed in his word very clearly that he desires all men to repent and be saved. And he has revealed very clearly that he has ordained that many would be. Can we say more than that? Maybe. But if we do, we are again speculating and will most certainly get it wrong when it comes to trying to explain the mind and purposes of God because the secret things belong to him. He is a God who sovereignly brings sinners to faith in his son. And he is a God that desires that men would repent and be saved. This we can say for sure, that there will be no empty seats in heaven. As it stands today, there are still more people who will trust Christ and be counted among the righteous on the last day. We see the patience and the mercy of God in the flood account. We see the patience and mercy in our day as God waits in sending Christ back. And here, inasmuch as it depends on us, we preach and proclaim God's sovereign grace to save sinners, and we uphold that that should never for one second cause us to think that God is not kind, that God is not patient, and that God does not desire that sinners be rescued. Those things are not contradictory. That's all by way of point one. Point two, moving forward. We're just going to call point two the flood. The flood happened. So we're going to look at it from chapter 7. I don't have a creative heading other than that. I think it speaks for itself. It's a pretty epic event. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7. Let's just summarize this very briefly. The Lord reiterates that because Noah is righteous before him, that he, his family, and a representative group of animals will be rescued and saved from the flood. He tells Noah to start making preparations, given that the rains are going to start in seven days. The boat's built. Get ready. The rains are coming. And Noah, again, does what the Lord has commanded him. In verses 6 to 10, Noah, his family, and the animals get on the ark, which would have, I'm sure, taken a few days to accomplish. You ever pack for a trip? Yeah, I mean, this is a big one, right? So it's going to take them a while to get loaded up and get ready. And then after seven days, the floodwaters come as the Lord said they would. In verses 11 and 12, the flood begins. Now, a couple of things here. One, it's not just heavy rain for 40 days that produces this. I think we need to realize that. It's somewhat more seismic in scope. 
And then second, we should see clear references to Genesis chapter 1 in the language of this text. So when you see words like, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. This is very violent language. The only other place in the Old Testament this kind of language occurs is like the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, this is like really, really violent stuff. Think like tsunami tidal wave kind of stuff. And that language of the great deep and God kind of doing this reset button thing that he's doing with the flood should make us think about Genesis 1 and chapter, excuse me, verse 2, Genesis 1-2, where we read that the earth was without form and void and the darkness was over the face of the deep. We read also in verses 11 and 12 that the windows of the heavens were opened. It's a clear reference to the waters that were above the expanse of the heavens in Genesis 1-7. And then we read that rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, 40 being a number that biblically always represents a period of trial and testing. So in all of this, the point is that we need to see the flood as a kind of undoing, a reversal of what God had done in Genesis 1 where he brought chaos to order, now we have order being, in one sense, undone. Because God is acting in judgment because of the sin of mankind. He's hitting a reset button. In verses 13 to 16, it's reiterated that on the day that the floodwaters came, Noah, his family, and the animals got loaded onto the ark. And then put your eyes on verse 16 and the the very last sentence of it. And the Lord shut him in, in the ark. In verses 17 to 24, the floodwaters come, they rise, they cover everything, and every living creature on the earth that is not on the ark dies. You just get that refrain over and over again in verses 21, 22, and 23. Things are dying, and the judgment is total. All right, now, let's think about the flood, not just in terms of what happened, but what are we learning about God man and salvation and God's ways with us. In the flood, we're being taught about salvation and judgment. We're being taught about big word eschatological things, like end times things. So we should read the account of the flood as an historic event, yes, and also in this kind of redemptive historical way. As we've said multiple points through this series in Genesis, Genesis is historical, and it is not a documentary. It's not revealed that way. This is not National Geographic. This is written in a way that will teach us about God's plan of redemption. So just track with me as we think about Genesis 1 up to where we are now. God creates. God creates man uniquely in his image. Everything's good. Man sins, and his sin becomes great on the earth. God determines to act in judgment. He reveals all of that to a man who has found grace in his eyes. This man is a preacher of righteousness via faith in the promises of God. God delays his judgment for a time so that man might repent and be saved. Then the judgment comes. It comes swiftly. It comes all at once. And God's people are saved because they are put safely by God into God's chosen vessel of salvation. They
blood points to final judgment and how it will occur. The only thing we need to do right now is consider the words of Christ himself who said this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man when he comes back again. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That's Luke 17, 26 through 27. So we see a glimpse of the kind of suddenness and the all-at-once nature of final judgment even in the flood coming. Second thing that we should see. These next two are big. Number two, the ark is a pointer to Jesus. The ark is a pointer to Jesus. Track with me. By that I mean the ark, when you look at it, and you, re- you see what the ark does, and what it accomplishes for Noah and in the purposes of God, it preaches a sermon about Christ. The saints have seen this for 2,000 years, right? This is not new to me or to anybody here at CBC. Look at chapter 7 and verse 7. This language, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. We just sang a song today. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Hide from what? The waters of God's judgment. Look at verse 16 of chapter 7 and that last sentence that I drew your attention to. Those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him, being Noah, in. Saints, by faith, we are united to Christ. By faith, we are sealed into him. That is the language of the apostles. We are sealed into Christ by the Holy Spirit himself. We take refuge in Christ. That's the language of the Psalms and Ruth. You see it all over the Scripture. We take refuge in Christ in order to escape the waters of God's judgment. Though we deserve God's judgment because we are just like every other human being, and though it will come upon everyone who is outside of Christ, we are safe in Him because He took God's judgment for us. It's like we sing often in the song called Jerusalem, when we sing the third verse about the cross and we say these words and sing these words that he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. It's what he did for us. And we are safe because of him. Just like Noah and his family and the animals were safe in the ark from the judgment of God, we are safe in Christ. And this has always been God's plan. The Bible is about Jesus and the redemption he would accomplish. Read the flood account. Third thing that we should see in the account of the flood and the ark is this. The flood and the ark serve as a pointer to baptism. The flood and the ark serve as a pointer to baptism. Now, before you think that I'm saying something new again, consider these words from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Peter references the days of Noah and the building of the ark and says, in which, talking about the ark, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Peter connects the ark and the flood and Noah being brought safely through water to our baptism into the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. We, too, have been brought safely through water. Regarding baptism, the way the Scriptures speak about baptism is that the sign and the thing signified are so closely related that we can speak this way. That baptism saves you does not mean that it literally saves you as apart from faith, but that the sign and the thing signified are so closely related that we can speak that way. Noah being brought safely through the waters of the flood is a pointer to baptism and the salvation that it signifies. In terms of cleansing from sin, we have been washed in the waters of baptism, and as we sang today, triumph of mercy, our sins, they are drowned. And in baptism, we are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. The language of Paul from Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Friend, when you were baptized, when I was baptized, we were plunged beneath in one sense, the flood of God's judgment. We were plunged beneath the flood that would be our death. We are united with Christ in the death he died for us, and we are raised with him to walk in newness of life and are promised bodily resurrection through union with Christ. Christ took the floodwaters of God's judgment for us, and we get eternal life through union with him. So in other words, when you read the account of the flood and of the ark, you should think three things. Salvation, baptism, Jesus. Not sure you've heard anybody say that before. But it's how we should read this text. Salvation, baptism, Christ. is what this is ultimately about. Point number three. We're going to look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 19. Simple heading for this point is the flood subsides. The flood subsides. The more substantial heading, I was going to give you one, God remembers his promise to Noah. God remembers his promise to Noah. So let me briefly summarize what happens in these verses before I draw our attention to a couple of things in the rest of our time together. So chapter 8, verses 1 to 19, the flood waters recede over the course of many months. The ark we read settles in the mountains of Ararat, and there is a period of 40 days that goes by. Then in seven-day intervals, Noah sends out like a raven and a dove at multiple points to try to determine if the waters have subsided from the ground. Now, I'm tempted to say all kinds of things about the birds and some of the things that are going on there and the dove and the olive branch and some of that stuff and how a dove shows up at the baptism of Christ, but I'm going to refrain because I love you and I'm not going to take the time to do all of that. Finally, after a year and 10 days from the time that Noah, his family, and the animals got on the ark, the earth is dried out. A year and 10 days that they were on the boat. And then the Lord finally tells them, it's good to go out. The earth is dry. But let's look back at verse 1 of chapter 8. Let's look at it together. Look at that opening phrase, that opening sentence. God remembered, but God remembered Noah 
and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, whenever we see this language of God remembering something, it is not as though he has forgotten and now has recalled it to his mind. Because I think when we read something naturally, because God uses human language to try to reveal himself to us, because he condescends to our capacity, sometimes we misunderstand. This word, whenever we read God remembered something, is speaking not to him recalling something that he forgot, but rather that he is now going to act on promises he's made. That's what's going on. He's going to act on promises he's made. In this case, he makes the waters subside. Why does he do that? Because you read the end of chapter 8 and verse 1, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. He remembered Noah and the waters subside. He does that because he had told Noah in chapter 6, verses 17 to 20, that he and his family and everybody on the ark would be brought safely through the flood. And he had told Noah that he would establish a covenant with him. So this thing, friends, about our God, that he remembers it matters. It mattered for Noah. It mattered for Noah's family. And it matters for us. So think about it. Noah and his family had the promise of God. Noah had been told, I'm going to bring you safely through the flood. But they also spent months, month after month after month after month on the ark. Rain keeps falling. I mean, my goodness, the, 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 great, the fountains of the great deep have burst forth. I mean, it's like, who knows what this was like? Rain's falling. Water is covering everything. Everything around, and by everything, we mean everything dies. It's bleak, it's dark, it's terrifying. So no doubt it would have been easy to think, if you're Noah and those people on that boat, like, what is going on? And everything clearly is lost. This is flat out insane. It would be easy to think that God had forsaken them, to question whether God would really do what he said. I'm not sure if you've ever questioned the promises of God. I'm not sure if you've ever questioned and wrestled with, is God really going to do what he said? I trust Noah and his family did, and we know that the saints through history have. Read the Psalms. Read the laments of the prophets. Over and over and over again, God's people through history look around at how bad things are and they ask, how long, God? Or they ask effectively, God, are you really going to do what you said? So too with us. We go through seasons of darkness, seasons of suffering, seasons of terrible things happening all around and we wonder and we question and we cry out the exact same way. God, how long is it going to be this way? We wrestle in our hearts. Like, God, I don't, I don't know what I believe. I, you say this, but my life, my experience, preaches a very different message to me than your word does. You say I'm your child, but I feel like your enemy. You say that I'm safe, but I'm afraid. Such is our experience. You say that all will be well, but God, very little feels well in my life. Help me understand. What wonderful words 
that are revealed to us throughout the scriptures that remind us of God's faithfulness and what wonderful words we have in Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah and the waters subsided. He does not forsake us. He will not leave us in darkness. He is the God who remembers and he always acts on his promises for the sake of his people because he has saved those people in his son. Like we sang today, one day all things will be made new. I'll see, I will see the hope that you've called me to. And in your kingdom paved with gold, I'll praise what? Your faithfulness of old. We will know then in a way that we don't now that God has been faithful every moment. One other thing, just as we're moving towards a conclusion. One other thing on God remembering. Just like when we read that God remembers, it doesn't mean that he's recalling something that he's forgotten, but rather it means that he's about to act on his promises. So too when it comes to God not remembering things. There's language in the scripture about that too, where God says, I won't remember this. Doesn't mean that he's gotten dementia or amnesia or something like this. He says, for example, through the prophet Isaiah, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I remember the promises that I've made, and I always act on those, and I keep every one of them, bank on it. And for my own sake, I have dealt with your sin, and I will not remember them. He doesn't mean that he's going to forget them as though they're just dissipated and gone. He means that he will not treat us as our sins deserve. So when we read Psalm 103, verses 8 and following, this is incredible stuff. The Lord is merciful and gracious. There's that again. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's that again. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't deal with us like our sins deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Praise be to his name. He does this because our sins have been dealt with in Christ. He does this because our sins have already been paid for by Jesus. He does this because Jesus has accomplished righteousness for us and then gave it to us when we were united to him by faith. And the understanding of Christians through history is that the righteousness and the satisfying work of Christ is applied to people who lived even before Christ came. So when we talk about Noah, or we talk about Abraham, or we talk about David, or we talk about anybody, They are being counted and declared righteous by God in the exact same way that you and I are because of Christ. Because as you know, and I know, God sits outside of time and the plan was always for Christ to come. It's Romans 3, 
He looked over former sins because Christ is coming. And on this side, he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He always has been. One last just wonderful piece on God forgetting our sins. Hear the promise of God that he will keep and has kept from the lips of the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It's the greatest news in the world a sinner could ever hear from a holy and righteous God. I won't remember your sins. This is the promise of God in his gospel. For all those who trust in his son and are united to him, God no longer remembers their sins and they will be declared righteous. So as we finish just thinking about Noah, how does it end for him and his family and the animals that are on the ark? Well, the earth finally dries out as we've considered it, and the Lord speaks to Noah in verse 15 of chapter 8. He says, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your wives with you, and take all the animals that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Verse 18, So Noah went out, and they all did. Judgment is over. The creation is restored. They enter into it. How will things then end for us as we sit in a world that is racked with corruption, as we know that final judgment will come? For those who are in Christ, the judgment is not a fearful thing because the justice of God has already been poured out on Christ. It's over. And Christ is the one who will judge. The one who died for you is the one who will judge you. The one to whom you have been united, the one in whom you take refuge is going to be the judge of all the earth. You are safe. And then at the end of it all, the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eye. He will be our God and we will be his people. And because he is the way he is, he will speak to us and he will look at us and say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy forever. And so we will enter into that joy forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we pray for faith as we so often do at the end of this time. Your word says things in it that are marvelous, that are hard sometimes for us to comprehend. Your word has things in it that are wonderful and we need your grace to believe and trust them. We pray that we would be people who do take you at your word, who trust your promises, who heed your warnings, and who above all always trust in your son alone. We pray that you would continue to give us faith and sustain and nourish the faith we have. We pray that the things we've already done in this service would be used for that. We pray that the table that we're about to come to would be used for that. We ask for you to be with us now, even as we continue to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we are...